folks online, you can hear me now. But that we would lift up our, our nation in this time, that we would lift up those that, uh, you know, it's interesting. I read a lot of articles, just people's response to it from, from, uh, from how could this happen? And, and it just it made my heart just weep to hear the hurt that people experience and to hear how it just seems like it's twisted. What they're, and I just go, God, will you help us? God, will you save lives? God, will you show us as your church here and as your church around the world how we can step out to be that loving, with the hands and feet of Christ, to love uh, babies that would have been aborted maybe except for this, to love people that feel like they have to give this kid up for adoption or whatever. I don't know what it's going to be like, but that God would use us as his church in this way to show love to those around us and to be willing to make the sacrifices that, that need to happen to be pro-life all the way through and through and to support those that need it. So um, let's go before the Lord in prayer. God, I, I thank you. Um, I thank you that you created life, and I thank you that life is, is sacred. And um, God, I thank you for the lives that will be saved because of, of this decision. And Lord, I, I pray for our nation. Our nation is so broken. God, there's so much division and God, sometimes we can look to all the wrong places for, for hope or for what we think is the right way. And we want to put our focus on you, on who you are, on your word, on, on what you have done for us and what you've called us to do, God, to live as aliens and exiles in this world. And so, God, I pray for those uh, that are hurt and confused about this decision, God. I pray that you will turn their eyes towards you. God, I pray that a change of heart, Lord God, I, I pray that that you, God, will use the church and use others to support those that need love and support in, in this uncertain time for them because they feel like the floor has been ripped out from underneath them. Lord, will you help your church to walk in what you have for us, God? Show us how we as individuals, we as a family, we as your church here and your church around the world need to open our hearts and our homes to those that need home and love and support. God, I thank you that that regardless of how political decisions or judgment decisions or whatever goes on, that you are God, you, are, you reign on high, we trust you. We don't put our hope in Supreme Court justices. We don't put our hope in the president or in elections or in representatives. We put our hope in you, and we ask, God, for your wisdom as we walk in but not of this world. And I pray, God, that you will save many lives. And I pray that you will draw people to you. We love you, Lord, and we worship you. In your name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of First Peter. Uh, it's a little bit different today. I don't have slides up on the screen. We're probably not going to bounce around quite as much, but sometimes you never know. But go ahead and turn to the book of First Peter. Okay, Today we, is week two of our sermon series uh, that's called Exiles and aliens living out our hope in a world that is not our home. You see, First Peter is all about what does it mean for us to live in a world that's not our home. You know, Jesus, in John chapter 17, he said, God, I don't want you to take them out of the world. He's praying for his disciples. Don't take them out of the world, okay, but protect them from the evil one. He said, they're not of the world, just like I'm not of the world, but I'm not asking you to take them out. I'm asking you to protect them. You see, uh, last week we talked about when we get saved, God doesn't just take us to heaven right away, right? That would be easier, right? 
Just think of all the, you know, trials and hardship you wouldn't have to face. You would just have the bliss of eternity right there, right? But that's, that's not how life works. Why? Because if you look out there, you see, look back. Actually, look back. Look back at the wall. Okay, look back. Good, you guys. Yeah, you are entering the mission field because God has a calling for us to be ambassadors, to be witnesses, to be missionaries, right? He's coming back someday. That's the truth. And when the disciples wanted to know, is it time? Is it time, Jesus? Like, are you going to take us to heaven? Are you going to set up your kingdom? Are you going to do it? And he says, it's not for you to know the days or the times, but you're going to wait. You're going to receive power when you get the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses. That's the calling of the church. Christ is coming back one day. We live for that day. We, we recognize the signs of that day that's approaching. That's a scriptural thing to do. Understand the signs. We don't have to know exactly when it is. That's okay. We live ready and waiting and what's our calling? To enter the mission field. Be missionaries here. Be representatives. Be a witness. To realize this world is not our home. You see, Peter is writing uh, to Christians that are scattered around what is modern-day Turkey. And he starts out with, as aliens in this world. This world is not our home, and that's okay. Yes, we live in this world. We don't just insulate ourselves and don't interact. No, because we've been called to be a witness and an ambassador. But this world is not our home. Yes, we are citizens of this country. If you're an American citizen or a citizen of whatever country you are, yeah, that's true. You're in this world. You're not of this world. Our citizenship first is in heaven. And we're awaiting a king that's coming. And we live for that day. And so First Peter is about how then shall we live. Last week when we uh, started to unpack this, we said the, the first thing that we want to look at is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ because Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, that we want to look at that we have this inheritance that is that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven. It's reserved for us. That we live this life knowing and embracing our alienship. Yeah, this isn't my home. It's okay. It doesn't feel comfortable. It shouldn't. Does that mean that I just wall myself off? No. I'm an exile. So I can do what Jeremiah said to the exiles. Build houses. Plant gardens. Live your life. Pray for the good of the community. Work for that. Walk out your salvation. But know that Redemption is coming, and that's what you're living for. That's what you're looking for. Remember the inheritance that you have bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we live for that day. That's what we talked about last week. And so what we're going to do this week, we're going to start in verse uh, 10, and we're going to finish the chapter, and we're going to look at how then shall we live? What does it mean for us to live as exiles and aliens? So we're going to read through the chapter, and then we'll come back, and we will unpack, unpack it a little bit. So... 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, so the inheritance that he says that's coming that gives us joy in the midst of trials, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, because of that inheritance and salvation we have, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which are yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
If you address the Father, if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so your faith and your hope are in God. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love for the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass. All its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this was the word that was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So here Peter is moving from here's the salvation that we have to here's some of what it means for us to live in the world. He's talking about as God is holy, we are to be holy. Now we are not going to be holy and perfect, completely separated from sin perfectly like God is here in this life. Okay, We're not going to have that. We're going to struggle with our sinful nature throughout our life. If we were to look ahead in this chapter, he says, look, as aliens and strangers, I urge you, abstain from the sinful lust that wage war against you. We're in a battle. We fight against it. The idea is, Peter is saying, I want you to be set apart like God is set apart. I want you to be set apart from the world. I want you to look different from what the world is like. And when we do that, we're a witness to the world. How do we do that? And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. So in 1 Peter chapter 10, he talks about the greatness of the salvation that we've received. So this salvation that we have in the Old Testament, the prophets, it's kind of like we can look at prophecy like this. It'd be like you're in, uh, you're in Colorado maybe and there's the Rocky Mountains. Anybody ever been out to Colorado and seen the Rocky Mountains? Beautiful, okay? Anywhere you've ever seen mountains, okay? Michigan doesn't really have mountains. It's, it's beautiful. When you get up to the top of one, you just look out. But when you see the mountain range from afar, you see all these peaks. And they look like they're right next to each other, but they're not necessarily. Like, you'd be like, we're going to visit those two peaks today. Okay, yeah, go ahead and try it. You climb up one, and then you're like, oh, to get to the other one, i got to go all the way down this valley, and i got to go around here, and then I go up because it's way over there. And so sometimes uh, in, in prophecy, it's almost like the prophets are looking ahead at this mountain range, and they're seeing the different mountains, and it's all kind of one story, but as we see fulfillment, that um, there's time in between, Okay. So Jesus came as a suffering servant. That's like one mountain peak. He's going to come again as a conquering king. That's the next mountain peak. There's at least 2,000 years of history in between there, right? And so he says they were looking and waiting. When is this coming? When is the suffering coming? When is the the hope coming? When is the glory coming? And they realized it wasn't for, they weren't going to receive it in their time on earth. Peter says, but it's something that you receive. And then he talks about the greatness of this salvation because he talks about the grace that would come. Now, I want to just unpack the word grace a little bit. Sometimes we talk about grace as unmerited favor, and that's what it means. Grace is favor from God 
that you cannot earn. Let me say that again. Grace is favor from God that you cannot earn. You can't. And so, if you're trying to earn God's love or God's grace, you're missing it. You can't. That's what the gospel is about. You can't save yourself. You can't be good enough. You need God's unmerited favor poured out to you through Jesus Christ. That's how you're saved. Some theologians would uh, define grace like this. It is God's voluntary, unrestrained, unmerited favor towards guilty sinners, granting them justification in life instead of the penalty of death, which they deserve. Granting them just as if they never sinned. That's what justification means. Instead of the penalty of death. J.I. Packard puts it this way. The grace of God is love freely shown towards guilty sinners. Contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their demerit, it is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and who have no reason to expect anything but severity. I love that definition of it because it's not just that, well, I don't deserve these good things. I don't deserve God's love or God's grace or God's forgiveness. It's not just that. It's like in defiance of our demerit. It's not just that we don't deserve forgiveness and salvation and God's love and grace. It's that we deserve the exact opposite. Hell and damnation and separation and death. That's what, that's what we deserve. And in defiance of that demerit, God says, I give grace. I give favor because Jesus died in our place. That's what grace is. Another pastor would say grace, grace means that, that God loves us and, and God likes us. Grace means that, that we, we can stop fighting to be accepted and realize that God loves us and accepts us. So today we're, we're going to talk some about like killing our sin, fighting against our sin nature. And you know what? It's not really a fun thing to preach about. Okay, it's not. It's not always a fun thing to hear. But you know what? God's grace is so good and so big and it covers our sin, but it doesn't mean you just stay there. Because God's grace is big enough to say, I want to take you out of where you're at and I want to help you walk in holiness because that's my plan for you and that's one of the ways you witness to the world. So as we go through this, we're saved by grace through faith. We are sanctified. We are made more like Jesus by grace through faith. Titus says the grace that saves us is the grace that trains us just like a parent trains their child. And if any of you ever have had a child or have interacted with a child, you know that that training is not like you say it once and they get it perfectly forever, right? I mean, maybe, maybe. Anybody know? Okay, no. It's over and over and it's loving and it's accepting and it's forgiving and it's moving forward and it's seeing that growth and it's like, you know, you see this and this and this and this, but you zoom back and you see the growth. That, that's what God desires for us. That's what his grace wants to do in us. But God is very serious about us taking the gift that we have received and living it out. So we have this great salvation. We have this great grace, okay? And then in verse 13, he moves from, here's what you have. Here's that salvation, that grace to then, therefore, okay? So uh, if you're like an English major, there's like the indicative, okay? Or, or that this is true. Then you have the imperative. This is the command. This is what God has done. This is your new identity. Therefore, verse 13 says this. Therefore, because you have this salvation, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. 
But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You read throughout almost all the letters of the New Testament and you see, here's what God has done. Here's your new identity in Him. Therefore, this is how you live. It's not live this way so that you can have this. You have it. You put your faith in Jesus. You have the grace. You have his spirit inside you. Now, walk out worthy of the calling. Therefore, because you've received this, live it out in this way. You see, when we fight against our sin, fight against our sinful nature, we don't fight to win. We don't fight in order to get victory. We fight from a position of victory. Does that make sense? We don't fight against our sinful nature in order to win a battle. The battle's been won, and we fight to be more like Christ because that's one of the reasons why he died for us. That his plan is everybody who has accepted him is going to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. And the part we play in that is to submit to his spirit and seek to put our sinful nature to death. Or as Peter would say, to abstain from those sinful desires that, that wage war against our souls. To reflect the nature of, of God who, who is separate from sin and desires us to be separate from sin. Let's continue reading on a little bit. Verse 17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Here's what Peter is saying. Look, it's, an, it's a good thing for us to get. God is judge, right? He's just. He's a judge. He's also the loving father. Sometimes we can like separate that. And we can be like, God is all loving father or he's all judge. But it, it's both. God is the God who's just, and he judges according to what we do. He's also our loving father, and Jesus died in our place, and so our judgment has been received by Jesus. And he says this, so look, because the judge is your daddy, live your life in reverent fear. That doesn't mean to be afraid. I don't know what to do. I'm so scared. I'm so scared. But it means live your life with this reverent awe, fear, that the God who has saved you is the one that will judge the world, and he saved you. Let's keep reading to to see where does that motivation come from. He says, while you stay on this earth. That that word is the idea of being a sojourner. While you're an alien and an exile on this earth, live your life in reverent fear. Why? Verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. Anybody ever experienced that feudal way of life? Like in your faith journey, in your struggle with your own besetting sins? And you go, this is futile. I hate it. Anybody ever been there before? I have. This is a futile way of life. I don't like that. I don't want this. And so here's the motivation. Here's the motivation for Christian living. You were bought with a price. And not with those things that fade away, those perishable things, you know, like gold and silver. Which we're like, gold and silver, that's precious stuff. No, 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 not like, not like those things that are so precious in the world's eyes, not with a million trillion dollars. No, because that, that, no, that stuff fades away. That's, that's, that's not going to last forever. You have been redeemed. The worth has been put back into you. You've been rescued out of darkness into life by what? What does it say there? Look in your Bibles. What does it say? I don't have it on the screen, so you've got to look at your Bibles. What have you been redeemed by? The precious blood of Christ. Do you realize how much you're worth to God? You're not worth a trillion dollars worth in gold that in our day and age would be worth a lot more, right? You know, if we had a trillion dollars back when Jesus was here, no. 
you are worth to God the precious blood of Jesus. Because that's what he paid to rescue you and to rescue me. And that should instill within us this awe, this reverence of, wow, I mean that much to you. You love me that much that you would send your only son to die for me? Like you, you, you didn't just pay gold or silver or what your son for me, for you. And what Peter is saying, that's what it is. That's the motivation for living. Look, you don't have to live the old futile way of life. Why? Because you've been redeemed, and not just with silver or gold, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Your sins, if you put your faith in Jesus, have been removed. He breaks the power of broken sin, right? Sin's hold on you is broken. There's new life ahead of you. Does that mean perfection? No, you're going to struggle. You're going to fight. We're in a battle to the very end. It wages war against our souls. And Peter says, as an alien and a stranger, abstain from it. Fight against it. If we were to look in the the book of Romans, go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 8. If you want to keep your finger in Peter or part of your bulletin or whatnot, because we'll be back there. But Romans chapter 8. Paul would put it like this. Verse 13. It says, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Translate a little bit differently. Kill your sin. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. Look, not, not in order to be saved, but because you have been redeemed. You've been bought with, bought with a price. And, and realize you're in a battle. You have a flesh. You have a sinful nature. Your enemy, Satan, is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So Fight! Fight against, who are you fighting against? You're not fighting against people. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spirits and the principalities. It's a, it's a battle against our flesh, our sinful desires. So Peter says, abstain from that because you're in the world but not of it. You're an alien. You're an exile. Paul says, kill your sin. Kill your sin. You see, we talk about God's love and grace because you know what? That's the gospel. You can't be good enough for God's love can't be good enough for God's grace. It's given in defiance of your demerit, in defiance of what you and I deserve as sinful, broken people. Period. And when we realize our need of a Savior and we put our faith in Jesus, we're rescued, we're saved. And out of that, God says, now here, I want you to live it out. I've broken the power of sin over you. I've given you my spirit. Now walk with me. And the Christian life is not just... There's ups and downs and there's battles and struggles because we fight. But here's the thing. If you realize you're in a battle, then it can help you live with intentionality. Because if we look at the verse right before that, I think Romans chapter 8, 12, um, Paul says, look, you don't have an obligation to the sinful nature anymore. You don't have to give in to your desires. You want something wrong, you don't have to do it. Why? Because you have the Spirit of God in you. You're not obligated to that. Why? Because you've been redeemed. You've been bought out of that, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so the challenge for us is by the power of the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Kill your sin. How do we do that? I picture kind of like a hose. You turn on the hose and the water comes out. What do you do to stop the water? If you, you know, let, Let's say the nozzle broke. What would you do? You can kink it. What are the things in our life that we need to, by God's Spirit, choke out and kink? Maybe places that we know we shouldn't go. Safeguards we need to have. 
guardrails that we set up in our life so that we stay on the path that God has for us. A guardrail that is, that is not right on the line, but is maybe this way. So if we were to bump up against it, we realize, whoa, that's not what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to get back on the path. Because God is serious about us fighting against our sin until the day we die or Christ returns. Now, one thing I want to say about this. In your fight against sin, don't give in to condemnation. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is God's spirit working in your spirit to realize something is wrong and you need to stop that. Pointing you back to the cross and bringing you forward. It's kind of like in Hebrews chapter 4 that uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews says the word of God is like a double-edged sword. It pierces and divides. It shows us just who we are in the good things about us, which scripture says even our righteousness is like filthy rags and in all of our sin. It exposes us. The writer says that we are laid open and laid bare before God who sees and knows everything. That's sobering. God knows everything about you. He does. And he loves you. He knows everything about me and he still loves me. And the very next verse out of that, God's word opens us up, exposes us before God. It talks about, therefore, since we have this great high priest who's gone before us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us then approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence. You see, when God convicts us, we see what's wrong. And we're exposed. And his spirit wants to lead us to him who is the high priest, who's taken our sin, who's taken our shame, and brings us into the throne room of God with boldness and confidence to receive the grace and the help that we need in our time of trouble. The word picture is a, is a boat tossed by the storms, and there is either a heavy rope or a chain that is wrapped around it to keep it all together, to find help. That's what that word help means in a time of trouble, to find mercy and grace. Condemnation looks kind of like this, okay? If this is you, sorry, Barb, I'm going to use a bulletin. If this is you, condemnation's like, and you stay there. You're no good. You're worthless. I can't believe you did that. Sorry. Woke up. You know, I used to do that to my kid all the time. My kids always started crying when I woke them up in the sermon. That's what condemnation does. Maybe you couldn't see that, but it's putting us down pointing us back to ourselves, and we never move beyond the sin that we see and we feel to the one who's taken it away. That's the difference between condemnation and conviction. Where does it take you? Because God wants us to change. He knows that we are but dust. I love that verse from Psalms. He, he knows that we are dust. He understands we're humans. He's redeemed us. He knows we have a sinful nature. He understands. He knows what it's like to be tempted he knows what it's like to be tempted even more than you do. He never gave in to the temptation, right? Like sometimes it's like we can bear it, we bear it, we bear it, we bear it, we bear it. And the one who bears it all the way to the end that they overcome it, that's the highest point of temptation, right? They never gave in. He never gave in. He understands. And he wants to walk with us. Because he's serious about part of being in the world but not of it, of being an exile and an alien, is that we live differently. So the conviction of God, hey, this needs to change. For us to take the time to open up, God, search me and know me. What is in me that you don't want there? And lead me in the way everlasting. Expose me and bring me to you who have saved me and helped me to change. That's conviction. Not grinding down, you worthless piece of dirt, you scum, you're no good. No, mm -mm. 
you've been bought with a price. I, you know, this bulletin got a little bit ripped up. Think I would do that if I had a stack of a million dollars? What about the precious blood of Jesus Christ? That's what you're worth to him. That's how great God's grace is. So great that it not just saves us, but that he desires us to live differently. It's the saving grace of God that wants to train us. So yes, we are to work to kill our sin. Uh, Peter says, that, I mean, Paul says this in First Peter. Uh, <laughs> Paul says this in First Corinthians chapter 9. Don't you know in a race everybody runs? Only one person wins the prize. Run in such a way to win. So he says, I, so I, I'm not shadow boxing. I'm not going through the motions. No, I beat my body and make it my slave. Now he's not talking about, no, so I just, I just hit myself. No, he says, I'm, I'm intentional in my walk with God. That my desires that I have that I know are not right, I don't let that just lead me and guide me. I'm, I'm on a race for him. I want to run the race. I want to finish the race. I want to keep the faith because there's a goal, there's a prize that's coming for me. So Paul, Peter, the writer of Hebrews would say, fight your sin, kill your sin. Go against it. If you turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. We'll unpack this verse a little bit later in a different way, but Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. We're in a battle. We're in a battle. And it's okay to be in a battle. This world is not our home. When you recognize that you're in a battle, you're ready to fight. Anybody ever been in a game of dodgeball that they didn't know they were in? Anybody? I don't know if I ever have been in a game of dodgeball. I mean, I think I've been in a snowball fight I didn't know I was in until I was in it. But let me tell you, if you know you're in a snowball fight, you're preparing. You're getting your snowballs ready. You're making a barricade. You're ready. Our sinful desires wage war against us. That's what Peter says. In chapter 5, he says, Your enemy, the devil, is prowling around. He wants to devour you and eat you up. So be sober. Be alert. Be aware. Put on the armor of God. Fight the fight. Know you're in a battle. It's okay to battle. Know you're in a battle and fight. And how do we fight? It's not our own strength. It's not the things that we do. We fight by the Spirit of God given to us. We fight by the Word of God. Right? Let's look back at uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3. through 3. Because he's talked about, be holy like I am holy. You, you've been redeemed, okay? He's going to talk about fervent love for each other. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. That's the outcome of our faith, love one another. Everything's going to fade away except for the word of God, the word of God that was preached to you. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 2, putting aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all slander like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. How do we fight? We fight by the Spirit of God. We fight as we realize we're in a battle. We, by God's grace, say no to the things of the world, yes to the things of him. We put up guardrails. We, we do the things. We try to choke out the sin in our life, not feed it. And one of the ways to do that is by craving the pure milk of the word of God, letting the promises of God get in our head and our heart. When condemnation wants to rise up and keep you down in a place, you can remember that the word says, who is it that brings a charge against one that God has chosen? It's God who justifies. 
Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. No, 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 more than that, who rose from the dead is at the right hand of God interceding on your behalf. So I'm not giving in to condemnation. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to walk in the freedom that I have and seek to put my flesh to death. When we let God's word get in our head and our hearts, that's one of the ways that we live differently. When we take the time to let God search us and know us, to confess to him our faults and to ask for his help, when we seek to walk in obedience, it's really when we realize this world is not our home. We're exiles and we're aliens. And we want to be all in for him. To be the witnesses and ambassadors and missionaries that he's called us to do and to be. So how do we do this? Go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. I know Carl preached on this, well, taught on this in Sunday school last week, which I appreciate to be able to listen to. He did say, this is kind of like Jason's sermons last week, and I, I, I listened to it while I was mowing the lawn this week, and I was like, wow, oh, this is so good. How do we do this? Colossians kind of gives us uh, this, this uh, not necessarily a formula, but how it looks. He says, verse 1, Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking him, Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. So how do we do this? We realize who we are in Christ. We've been saved by him. So we set our minds on things above, on who he is, on whatever is good and right and true and noble and pure and praiseworthy, right? Think about those things. We set our minds on things above. We realize we've died. We don't, we don't owe our sinful nature anything. We don't have to give in. We don't have to go that way. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We remember who we are and seek to put our mind there. And then he goes on uh, to say, therefore. So out of that, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And he's going to go through, here's the things that we actively say no to. Why? Because we've been forgiven. Because we've been set on high. We set our minds there. We say no to the things of the world. But it's not just about saying no to those things that he's going to list through verse 6, 7, 8, 9, which Carl preached on last week, so I'm not going to go into them. You put off the old and you put on the new. Verse 10. And having put on the new self, who is in the process of being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal which there's no distinction between Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, freeman, but Christ is all in all. So those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against you, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should also. Beyond all these things, put on Love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Knowing who we are, what we've been called to, receiving that grace, And by that grace, seeking to put off the old, let God's grace teach us and train us to say no to the things of the world and yes to him. And then it's not just about saying no. It's about filling our minds and our hearts with the things of God. Putting on his kindness, his grace, 
his love and seeking to, to live that out in the world. You see, if uh, by God's grace, if we could live out Colossians 3, 1 through 17, uh, that would be a marvelous thing. To set our minds on things above, to continue to fight against our flesh and fight against our sin and to seek to live in the way that God wants us to do. And you know what? That's God's will for our life. Will we reach perfection on this side of eternity? No. Does that mean that we give up on the battle? No. It means we keep fighting. It means when we fall down on our face and we know we've messed up, we come to the throne room with boldness because Jesus died in our place. That's what it means to be a Christian. So what does all this mean for us today? Number one, we need to see our need. If you have never put your faith in Jesus, I want you to know this. You, you cannot be good enough to get to heaven. You can't. You can't. And the good news is, God knows that. And so he made a way for your sins, the selfish things you do, the wrong things we say, think, and do, and the good things we fail to do, that that can be completely removed in the cross of Jesus Christ. That all of your sins can be put on Jesus as if they were his. That's what the scripture says. He took it as if it's his, and he died. He was punished, and when he rose from the dead, they were gone. And so if you are trying to earn God's favor, you can't. So stop. God holds his hand out to you and says, I have removed your sin Here's my grace. Here's my salvation. Do you want it? And all you have to do is say, yes, I need it. Save me. And he will. And that puts you on the journey of your problems don't just go away. No. Life isn't going to get easier. It probably will get harder. Because now you know you're in a battle. You're fighting. But you don't fight to be victorious. You fight because you have victory, because Christ has won it. And you enter on that journey with him that there's ups and downs and ups and downs. But as we grow in his word and we grow in his spirit, we'll see the growth. And one day we die or he returns. Our sinful nature is gone and we are like him. And so if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I invite you to do that today. If, if you're here and you have put your faith in Jesus, then I want to encourage you to remember your need. Remember what sin is. Sin is why Jesus died. Like my sin put Jesus on the cross. Your sin put Jesus on the cross. And that hurts and it should hurt. But we don't stay there. I think that's motivation to not live that way. But remember that your sin has been removed and washed away. Remember that you're in a battle and God wants you to fight and keep going. I want to leave you uh, with this. In Titus chapter 2, it says the grace that saves us is the grace that, that trains us. Consider this. If you're going somewhere and you're off course by just one degree after one foot, you'll miss your target by two-tenths of an inch. That's trivial, right? Like no big deal. One degree, you're off just a little bit. But 100 yards, you'll be off by over five feet. You know, you're lying in a football field and you don't go quite straight. You're just one, one degree. Like that's tiny. You ever seen those protractors in math? One degree, so tiny. You walk 100 yards and you miss the corner by five feet. What if you're traveling from San Francisco to L.A.? You'll, you'll, you'll be six miles away. Or what if you fly from San Francisco to Washington, D.C.? You'll end up in Baltimore, which is 42 miles away. One degree is really, really important. 
What if you're a rocket going to the moon? You would be 4,169 miles off, nearly twice the diameter of the moon. You want to get to the moon, it's here, and you're one, two moons away from the moon. One degree, just one. And the last one, what if you would have traveled to the nearest star? You'd be off course by 441 billion miles. That's 120 times the distance of the Earth to Pluto or 4,745 times the distance from the earth to the sun. One mere degree is so important. And that can be disheartening, right? Because how many of us have ever been one degree off in our life? But here's where God's grace comes in. Listen, listen. God's grace that saves is a grace that trains. So that one degree off, by God's grace, course correcting. When we get off track, God, by his grace, wants to help us course correct. So we can look at those stories and be like, man, I make one little mistake and I'm millions of miles away from where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, but by God's grace, you get down the path and God says, yeah, you you weren't walking in this way. Course correct, get back on path. That degree back brings us where God wants us to be. So we fight every day. Help us to make the course corrections we need to by your grace, to walk on that path. We're not going to get it all the time. God understands. When we fall, he says, come to my throne room, receive mercy and grace, get back up and go. Paul, the great Paul, said, I'm not there yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, I press forward to what's ahead to grab hold of that for which Christ Jesus grabbed a hold of me. So skiff like Bible, church. Let us seek to run the race, to put our sin to death. Why? that we may glorify God. We may be a light to the world because that's part of what it means to be an exile and an alien is to let God help us live differently from the world. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenge it gives us. God, I want to be, I want to be holy like you and I fail so many times. I fall so short. We do, God. We fall short. And so, God, in the midst of our brokenness, we want you to search us and know us, to, to show us the areas of our life that we think are just okay, and we've kind of just, just justified it and just explained it away. Show us the sin within us so that we can come with boldness to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace that we can live differently. God, will you give us the strength and the perseverance to do that? Lord, we need you. We need you, God. So as we wrap up service with this song, it's called, Lord, I need you. And so let this be the prayer of your heart. You can stand, you can sit, you can sing along if you know the words, you can just reflect on it. But let this be the prayer of our heart. Lord, 